This is a HeadGum Podcast. And welcome to the Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin Show, episode number 200. We are going to do things a little bit differently this week. Uh, I have dug in to the Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin archive archives, looked through 200 episodes over six years of this show, and selected uh, not just some of my favorite interviews, but actually some of my favorite specific questions and answers, some of my favorite specific moments uh, from some of my favorite interviews. And you're going to hear them today. We are going to hit the ground running uh, with a clip from episode number 140 uh, with John Collins, who you may recall designed a world record-setting paper airplane. Um, but to get that record, uh, he couldn't throw the airplane himself. He needed to find uh, a professional thrower. Here is uh, the story of how he found that person. How did you find your thrower? Actually, to back up a sec, at what point did you realize, I'm going to need a thrower? <laughs> well, I, that was kind of obvious at the outset. I figured I had these this great set of planes, and all I really needed was you know uh, a hired hand, a hired gun. Uh, and so um, I have some connections in the sporting world. I know some guys who work for uh, the, the local sports channel here in San Francisco Bay Area. So uh, they they hooked me up with a quarterback, and we went went to a gym. And I thought, all right, well, this is just going to take a practice session or two with this guy. We'll get the the plane dialed in for him, and presto, change! I'll be a world record holder. <clears throat> nothing could be further from the truth. This guy had such large, powerful hands. He was kind of crushing the planes, and I couldn't really see what he was doing with them. And, you know, I wasn't aware of how much force he was going to have to apply to the plane and what that would do to the plane during launch. And so we were scattering planes all over this gym, and nothing was flying straight, and nothing was working. And I was making planes go further than this guy who could throw a football 85 yards. And so it was like, ah, oh, it was a total disaster. And so I had to really uh, go back and rethink a that whole idea. And so I, I changed throwers to a guy with, with smaller hands who, who had um, kind of a snappier kind of a throw. Uh, and while he was, he had more time uh, in terms of uh, the, uh, his availability, uh, it, it turned out that his throw was really uh, the worst kind of throw you could imagine. He was ripping planes in half. He had such a snappy throw. Uh, you know, when you think about how quarterbacks play the game they scan the field and then it's all about an explosive kind of throw you know out there toward the target at the last moment and he was that in spades i mean he had such a incredibly uh fast acceleration on his throwing motion that he, he literally ripped planes in half and then um and then i met joe uh joe was the third guy uh joe had played for cal uh and had a he had uh, a junior college uh career where he had just one loss over a two-year period <laughs> you know, so here's a guy who knows the game, knows how to throw, and is a heck of a competitor. And and he loved paper airplanes. He loves paper airplanes. And so, in in a lot of ways, the perfect guy. And um, over uh, an 18 month period of working with Joe, he figured out a way to smoothly accelerate the plane. Um, it changed the way his follow through motion worked. He changed uh, his throwing method to a more elbow down kind of style to help the wings release at a level angle. Um, and, and worked on a way of holding the plane that could compensate for a, a rock to the left or a rock to the right um, in, the, in the launch phase. So really, you know, he was important to the process in ways that I had not imagined. I just figured going into this thing, I just need a strong arm. 
And it turns out you really have to know how to throw. <laughs> In addition to that, you really got to, you know, and you have, you have to be willing to work. Next is a clip from episode 87. This is when I spoke with Matt Golden, an actor who played uh, Major League Baseball mascot, Mr. Met, from 1999 to 2011. Uh, For those that don't know, Mr. Met was actually the very first baseball mascot. Uh, He's a mascot with a giant baseball head and sort of a giant goofy grin on that baseball head. Uh, Here I'm talking to Matt about how he transitioned uh, from sort of a general role in the Mets organization uh, to someone who was, uh, well, Mr. Met. So when did you make that jump from entertainer to Mr. Met? Uh, so it was that first year, 99. Um, there was a gentleman who was Mr. Met, and uh, they I subbed in for him a couple of times, and I, I did some events, sort of sight unseen. They, I, I, they knew I had a performance background. I guess I was roughly the same height as whoever needed to be in the Important, costume. Important, yeah. It is. These are the little things. Um, and from that, they just sort of said, hey, we need you. To, can, would you want to fill in for this? And I went in, you know, with no... Uh, so you're in this, is the first time at the stadium or at some event? No, I did an out, my first appearance was an outside event mm-hmm. um, where I was just kind of, I didn't know what I was doing really. And I, they, I guess they, they knew my personality and they trusted me enough to kind of go and represent the Mets in a positive fashion. As far as the character, I kind of, with this performance background, I know what plays to an audience and I know what doesn't play. Now that's entirely different when you're covering head baseball heads. Yeah, yeah. So, so it was sort of, Learning on the spot. So, so what plays to an, what? What are the differences in performance when you're wearing a giant baseball head? Okay. Well, you know, with all my my acting training, right. um, you know, on stage there's a there's a, a sen- and on screen too there's a sense of subtlety and there's a sense of <laughs> yeah. nuance. You know, you just got that one goofy expression. And when you have one goofy expression, subtlety and nuance somewhat go out the window. It was an interesting thing to kind of figure out the thing you're a, you're an oversized cartoon you're a life-size cartoon character or a real life cartoon character so every step you take has to have an extra bounce to it like a cartoon character you're not a human being you know you're a character and there's an expectation that comes with that you have big four-fingered you know mickey mouse type hands you have gigantic shoes you have this gigantic head so there's an expectation when people see mr met he's not just going to walk up to you like another human and just kind of shake your hand but he's going to bound over to you and have a little more Mm -hmm. energy and have a different kind of gait when he gets you know as he's as he's coming up to you so it's sort of figuring those things out and that you 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 get a sense of what that is but then as I said, for me, it was interesting to sort of find the nuance in that. And with this fixed expression, he's always happy. He's always smiling. Yeah, there's no sad Mr. Met has. There is no sad Mr. Met, but you do have to find the different emotions within that. You know, so it, so how do you, with this one expression, how do you, how are you disappointed? You know, if, if a guy grounds into a double play on the Mets, well, Mr. Met's smiling, but Mr. Met can't be happy. So how do you sort of. So how do you do it? Well, it's just different physicality, just sort of like slumping your shoulders or, you know, putting your head down or covering your eyes, you know, mm. all these different yeah, things. Yeah, yeah. That... I can see like the Mickey Mouse at Disney World doing that. Like, yeah, yeah. And there's... I disappointed <laughs> the Mickey Mouse at Disney World a lot, apparently. <laughs> That's right. He was always unhappy <laughs> he when he was, saw yeah, you. Yeah, he always had to go to his unhappy place. <laughs> right, right. So, so it, it was an interesting, I would say a struggle, but then something you kind of develop into your shtick as far as finding the nuance and finding the different levels of enjoyment or disappointment within this one fixed expression, because it's, it can't always be happy. Mr. Met's always a positive character, but he can't always be happy based on what's going on around him. 
When I started putting this episode together, uh, this very next clip was one of the first that I absolutely knew was definitely going to be in it. It is my talk with Carrie Love. Carrie had a really cool career where uh, she manufactured Broadway costumes. People would give her the designs, and she would figure out how to sort of make them into reality, and she worked on shows like The Lion King and Spider-Man. And then uh, she went on to have a new career uh, designing spacesuits. And this is one of my favorite parts from this interview uh, where she's talking about what's similar between those two jobs and what's different between those two jobs. Here we go. What did you learn in Broadway that uh, helped you design spacesuits? So I would say the thing that really helps a lot is kind of having a deep understanding of materials. So I understand how fabric works and like translating that into how the fabric works in the spacesuit is really, really helpful. Um, Another thing that is really helpful between the two is kind of just being willing to try any solution that works. Because if you're making a fantasy thing for a theatrical performance, like you don't want to limit yourself by only doing what's been done before. And I think that's a really good attitude if you're working on a space suit. And then I feel like there are more things that translate well. Um, the collaboration, if you're working in a collaborative environment, that's really similar and at least in my company, where we're a very small company, the head engineer is very used to uh, making prototypes, but I'm trying to help them convert from making prototypes to getting ready for testing and manufacturing. And that process is weirdly not that different from, say, making a line of rockets, where you're like, okay, we did this one thing, now let's do it a hundred times for a hundred different people. Is there anything you miss about Broadway? How long Um, have you been doing this? I did Broadway stuff for about 10 years. And I did some puppet stuff for about three years within that 10 years. And then I have been doing spacesuit stuff literally since February. And full-time since July. I really miss the people. I worked at a company for 10 years. One company. And the people were totally like family. In all of the good ways and all of the bad ways. Um, Mm. I miss them so much. And I also miss the demographics of that. The costume production is a very ladies and gay men environment. And um, spacesuits seem to be a very straight man environment. Well, what are some of the other differences between the two? Hmm. Yeah, I guess when I made Broadway costumes, when I had a bad day, one of the things I would say to myself to make myself feel better is if I mess up, no one will die. Um, Unfortunately, that won't be true in the future. This next clip you're about to hear is probably the most successful guest I've ever had on the Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin show. And I've had a lot of successful people. I don't I don't like to rank them. Um, but this guy is literally one of the top 20 selling authors of all time. It is R.L. Stein, who, of course, created, amongst other things, the Goosebumps series of books. Right before this clip starts, we were just talking uh, about the very first Goosebumps book, Welcome to Deadhouse, and how it was the scariest, and uh, also how one of his favorite characters is Slappy, uh, who was the dummy from Night of the Living Dummy. So that's the context you need. Here is R.L. Stein. Well, you know, I've chosen the hardest thing you can possibly do, and that is an anthology series where you have to start over every single month with a whole new cast of characters, which is, I, that's just the hardest, hard, it's hard. But um, 
I, I enjoy it, and I, I think I'd get tired of Slappy if I had to do him every month. I've done five or six Slappy books at least, though. But they've Kids, been spread out over two decades. Yeah. Kids love sequels. They like mm-hmm. them. And a lot of times, the sequel, um, Night of the Living Dummy 2, did better than Night of the Living Dummy. Do you know, off the top of your head, what is the best-selling Goosebumps book? I think it's the first one. Uh, which, unfortunately, we just learned is the scariest one. <laughs> I know. I know. I don't know. I think The Haunted Mask might be second. You know, it's funny when you talk about these books, even though I haven't read them in a while or even seen them necessarily in a bookstore, I can still so clearly picture the image on the cover. And, like, I know what color the border of that image was. Some of those images were so striking. And they were all done uh, by one artist, Tim Jacobus. Am I saying that correctly? Right. He did the first 87 cover paintings. And how did you get hooked up with him? I didn't even meet him until we had been doing the series for three years. You know, publishers never want the author to get together with the artist. Why not? They want to keep them separately. They don't want to be outnumbered by them or anything. And I, he was doing covers, and I didn't meet him till we had a big Goosebumps party to launch the TV series, and he showed up, and that's the first time I ever met him. We never, re- you don't really work together. I would, I would write a brief summary of the plot of the next book, and they would send it to him with some, you know, suggestions, and he would start sketching while I was writing the book. And I, it was amazing because almost every single book, his cover matched up with what happened in, in the story. Once in a while, it didn't quite. You just mentioned Say Cheese and Die. Mm-hmm. If you remember the cover on that book, that book was about um, these boys who discover a really evil camera in an abandoned house. And they start taking pictures with this camera. And it takes pictures of bad things that happen in the future. And the cover painting came in from Tim, and it was a family of skeletons barbecuing. It had nothing to do with the book. They, the, the editors called me up, and they said, look, you have to add a scene with skeletons barbecuing. <laughs> you have to add a scene. So the paint, you can't change the painting. You have to change the manuscript. And I thought, what am I going to do? It has, what am, how am I going to do this? And then I, I figured out I, I made it a dream sequence. The kid dreams about skeletons barbecuing. And that's how I, got, how I made it make sense. Now, you know we were not going to get through episode 200, the best of the Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin show, without checking in on Scott Wiener of Scott's Pizza Tour. Scott is one of my oldest friends, uh, and the way he took his weird obsession with pizza and turned it uh, not only into a sustainable business, but actually into a force for good and a variety of charitable efforts, um, in many ways provided the blueprint uh, for the ideal guest for the Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin Show, people who've turned their obsessions into professions. I guess to set this up, I I should mention, if you're just joining us, that Scott's Pizza Tours is a company run by Scott, uh, where Scott and also other people uh, give tours to both locals and tourists alike of some of the best pizzerias in New York City. Uh, And they don't just take you around and feed you pizza, but also talk about sort of the history uh, and the science and the culture of pizza. And here is a clip. From episode number three, episode number three, this is Scott Wiener from Scott's Pizza Tours. Let's listen. You didn't always make pizza at home. But no. That started I was, like a year or two ago. I, yeah, about a year, year and a half ago. Yeah. Not even two years. I Well, yeah, I was really against it because I feared it. 
honestly. But it seemed like it came. It certainly came out today. You must get questions like, "I make pizza at home and blank," and now you yeah. have to, you need to be prepared to answer that. Totally. Well, it's it's made me much better at doing the pizza tour. Uh, it's made me. I've known way more about pizza. Like before, it was just kind of academic. Like I can give you information, but it's got to go deeper than that. Like yeah, today somebody was talking about how oh how come when I'm at making pizza at home it's it doesn't stretch or it's too sticky. And yeah, I make I make pizza maybe twice or two to four times a month. Um, maybe anywhere from four to fifteen pizzas in a night, and yeah, I learned so much more from 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 doing that that I can. I think what separates me from a lot of the like people who make pizza and people who research pizza is that I I try to learn about all different types. Whereas if you're at a pizzeria that's one style, they know that style, but maybe they don't know much about that. That's others. why you know the most about pizza of anyone possibly in the world. No, no. Well, here's the thing. If you know the most in New York, you probably know the most in America. Look, all, all my only goal is to be well-informed and up-to-date, and it's a process that just like making pizza. Like today, a lot of these guys who said they're always perfecting their craft, they're never done. You know, I, I'm always going to be – there's always so much more to learn. And actually, this relates to what you asked me before about doing the research and how it's gotten more technical lately. The thing is I started very broad, and I started with – Learning about pizza, visiting a lot of pizzerias, and then knowing like some of the basic information. But then I, I wanted to go further. So if I read a book about pizza, then maybe after that I started reading books about Italian immigration. Then after that I started reading books about the tomato, and then about I love that you're reading and, a book about it to inform your pizza knowledge. You're reading a book about Italian immigration. Totally, yeah, because that, that's why pizza is different all over the U.S. What's the most like tangentially connected to pizza book you've ever? Oh my read, god, I would, you read for uh, to can, learn about pizza. We should go. My my, my bookshelf is. Go to your bookshelf? 20 feet away. Can we do that? Yeah, let's go to let's go to your bookshelf. Now we are in Scott's bedroom. The bookshelf literally bending from the sheer volume of pizza books on it. <laughs> pizza books way more than normal books. Take me through this bookshelf. What are we looking at here? Okay, well, the way the way I have it set up is I have um, as my bookends, I have Pizza magazines on either side. There's Pizza Today magazine, there's PMQ, and there's also Canadian Pizza magazine. Uh, and then from the left side of the bookshelf, I've got books that are just about pizza, like The Pizza Book by Evelyn Sloman, which was like the first book to kind of take pizza into a cultural as a cultural icon. I've got some books that are international books. Like this is one that actually a friend of mine brought from the Netherlands, which feel the cover. It's like soft. Oh, yeah. It's like yeah. an actual pizza. And the book is called Just Pizza. It's called Pizza. But it's a, it's kind of a recipe book. But each page on the left side is the recipe. And on the right side is a full life-size picture of the pizza. Look how gross that is. That's a does not look appetizing no, at all. But the book's a cool good. idea. Yeah, yeah. Arugula. Okay, I'm going to put this away. Uh, but, you know, we're like well, then we move on and I've got some stuff. Actually, over here is one of my favorite sections over here. This is the whole section for um, brick ovens. Mm-hmm. So this is a... Uh, a book about breads and building brick ovens. Then this is another one about building brick ovens. This is another one about building brick ovens, building a wood-fired oven. Uh, Cooking with Fire, which is um, a company called Earthstone Ovens. I went to uh, visit them in Los Angeles last year, and the guy gave me this book, something he wrote about how to use a wood-fired oven. So, you know, if I'm talking about their ovens, I got to know what they're made of. I got to know how they're built. I got to know everything. Cheese books. There's my whole tomato tomato section. There's what? One, two, three, four, seven books about tomatoes, I think. Yeah, but then there's a new one that just came out, but it's only in hardcover, and I might have to wait for softcover. It's called Tomato Land. It's about how the fresh tomato industry is terrible. Mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. you know, for, as far as pizza goes, it's all about canned tomatoes, and that's kind of what I'm into. But this is History of Bread, which is really cool. And then we get into, you know, books about wheat, books about salt. 
I have a couple of... Uh, this one's amazing. Wheat flour. It's totally science book. Next up is Dr. Robin Rosenberg. She is a clinical psychologist uh, who has written and edited many books on the subject of superhero psychology. So that's uh, not only kind of what makes these characters tick, but I think more interestingly, why that makes them resonate with us and what it is uh, about ourselves that we see in these characters and how that makes them so popular. Here we are talking uh, about the psychological underpinnings of Wonder Woman and what drives Wonder Woman and what makes Wonder Woman such an interesting character. Uh, you should keep in mind this was recorded in 2015 before the movie came out, um, though I think you'll recognize a lot of what she was talking about uh, made it into the film. So let's take a listen. So, yeah, I probably have a little different take on on her than other people might. Um, and if anyone is listening from Hollywood, feel free to call me for a consult. Um, so for your listeners who don't know her actual origin story, she is, you know, again, there are a bunch of different origin stories, but the predominant theme is that her mom... Let's just take it as a given that there's an island of women. How they got to that island is a whole other issue, but they don't age, and they're all incredibly talented and gifted. They're athletic, they're bright, they're beautiful. And the queen wanted a child, and so she made, she made one out of clay, was imbued with all these extra qualities, so she was extra gifted. She grew up. And um, basically, she's so super competent that my take is that on this island, life was really boring. Every, there's, it's all, every day is the same. <laughs> and it's sort of like a Garden of Eden in that way. And so uh, there's a man falls from a plane who is fighting the Nazis. And I think this is a little hard about how to make it modern day. And she falls in love with him even though he's unconscious, which, again, I think speaks to the fact that she is desperate for new stimulation. She just, she just wants, she wants something new. Life is so boring when you're really gifted um, and, and, and everything's the same. So she wants to go with him back to America and to fight Nazis, and so she does. And there's a contest, and it's sort of, I won't even go into that. But but my take on her is she's really competent and gifted, and so she needs, she needs new situations just to keep her mind active. I mean, she needs a challenge. If you're really bright, I mean, I, I, if you're really bright and talented, how do you stay engaged in the world and not get bored? No, I think that's, to me, when I read her stories, that's actually part of it. I mean, she also, you know, she grew up with all of this wonderful cooperation, cooperative competition. So she has, she, and she has a great message for women about your body, although why she used to wear skimpy things, I don't know. But, but she is so comfortable in her body and she is really empowered in her body and she doesn't, evaluate her body from the outside like do I look you know thin enough or this enough or that enough which is a lovely model of just hey keep your body strong as strong as you can and it and just be thankful your body can do what it can do and that's a great message I mean so be comfortable with your body a lot of times you'll see Wonder Woman hanging out with Superman or Batman do you think that uh, people with those sort of extraordinary personalities, do you think they would actually get along and be friends? 
I, you know, it's as much as any two people who have a similar mission would. I mean, that was the thing with the Avengers, right? You subvert your own narcissistic or ego for the greater good. And certainly DC heroes are, are used to subverting their own needs and interests for the greater good. More, you know, they, they struggle less with that concept than Marvel characters. Um, so yeah, I think they would. And, you know, again, I think when Superman and Wonder Woman, again, if you view them as really gifted people, then they, they, it's, it's a pleasure for them to meet someone like them with whom they actually have a lot in common. I mean, Batman is an outlier in that way because he's human, but he's so uber that he, you know, he keeps them in awe. Um, Uber in the super sense, not the not the cab service, the car service. So I think it's totally possible. It's it's. I don't know if you've had this experience, but if you've been good at something and you've been around people who aren't as good as you, and then you meet someone else like you, it's just this nice. It's a nice experience. It's yes, it's refreshing. You can talk about the same things. You share the same struggles the same pleasures, the same challenges. It's, it's, it's a, it's a, that's, that's part of, you know, what the internet offers to people is finding other people like you. If, even if they don't live in your neighborhood. The next clip you're going to hear features Nelson Dellis. He is a four-time USA memory champion and one of the leading memory experts in the world. Um, here, Live on the show, he memorizes and then reads back uh, a random 30-digit number that I had just made up using sort of a memory palace technique. Now, since this episode aired, uh, the BBC series Sherlock really leaned into the whole memory palace thing um, and did sort of a whole episode, maybe even a whole season about it. But if you were listening to the Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin show in 2013, you heard about it here first. And what I love about this clip is you actually get to hear Nelson doing the thing that he's so ridiculously good at. And you'll actually hear me say uh, during the interview, I'm having so much fun right now, and I meant it because when I started to think about my favorite podcast memories, uh, this was one of the first one that came to mind. Here it is, Nelson Dellis memorizing a 30-digit number. Okay, I have a 30-digit number. I typed for I typed like a 90-digit number. I have no idea what a 30-digit number even looks like, apparently. Uh, but now I have it. I'm going to read it to you one number a second. You ready? This is going to yeah, be fascinating go. radio for the first time. Give day. me one second. So right now i got to find uh, – I'm mentally choosing one of my memory palaces to store this in. Yeah, so. please walk us through. I, I want to know everything about what's going through your head. Please you know, talk it out. Are your eyes closed when you're doing this? Like are you trying is – it, is it like a Professor X style where you're like thinking real hard with your eyes closed? I'm going to close my eyes, yeah. Okay. And, and you know, we can do this. I'll just uh, – maybe I can stop you along the way and say like what I just – what image I created right yeah, there. Yeah, please. I think that's going to be way more interesting than just 30 seconds of me reading numbers so please talk sure. us through this okay okay so ready? I'm, gonna, I'm gonna go to i'm in my my high school okay let's go with the first uh go for it five seven eight nine two one okay so that is egon serving uh uh shit on a, on a platter um so basically five seven is egon from ghostbusters Eight nine is a server friend of mine, but her action is serving something on a platter, and twenty one is just shit. 
I love so, I love this. I'm, I'm having so much fun right now. Five. Yeah. Six. Yeah. Eight. Mm-hmm. Five. Yeah. Seven. Eight. Okay, so that's um, Edward Scissorhands having a sandwich with a slice of pizza in it. Um, yeah, that and just I, sounds I, awesome. I just want to see that. Just a sandwich with a slice of pizza in, it. and that's I put that in the parking lot of this this uh, school. That's just um, a straight up good idea for a movie for an Edward Scissorhands too. <laughs> All right, I'm gonna keep going. I feel yeah. I, I'm worried. I, I don't want to slow you down. No, no, we're good. Okay, seven. I'm so much more worried than you are. Nine, six, two. One, three. Okay, so that's uh, Wayne Rooney, soccer player. He's driving a bus into a thong, to a massive thong. I'm just All right, let's keep going. Two, one, zero, eight, nine, seven. Okay, so that's Brian. And, and as you notice, I'm doing this six-digit uh, thing, not the seven. It's easier when I'm doing that audio numbers to use the six-digit system. Um, hang on, two, one, zero, eight. Oh, is Brian um, playing with himself, um, and on his genitalia, there's a um, ball and chain. Just one question: Who's Brian? Oh, he's a he's, sorry. Yeah, he's a good friend of mine. <laughs> awesome. Okay, uh, I'm gonna keep going. Zero, yep. mm-hmm. five, mm-hmm. six, eight, seven, nine. Okay, so that's Abe Lincoln in a wheelchair playing soccer that is all 30 digits that's 30 yeah okay so let me uh quickly review this make sure i have the images in my head okay 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 um so uh five seven eight nine two one um, five six eight five seven eight seven nine six two one three two one zero eight nine seven zero five six eight um, seven nine. Yeah, I feel like I don't even have to tell you that is absolutely correct. That was ridiculous. Totally awesome. I'm but even more impressed. That was, check check this out though. So with the technique, you can, you can do it backwards too, just by walking in reverse. You want me to do that? Yeah. Yeah. Why not? All right, so um, nine seven eight six five zero seven nine eight zero one two three one two six nine seven eight seven five eight six five um, uh, one two nine eight seven five. There it is. The next clip um, I think might be the most recent one I am including in this episode. It is just from a few months ago uh, from my conversation with Caitlin and Caroline from CW Pencil Enterprise. Um, These two run a pencil store in New York City on the Lower East Side. They're actually moving. Um, They're still going to be on the Lower East Side, but the pencil store is moving. Now, this is a store that sells nothing but pencils. Um, So as you can imagine, they get some interesting people coming in with interesting questions. They get interesting questions online. Um, So I'm kind of cheating here because this isn't the most interesting question I ever asked them, but I asked them what the most interesting question someone else ever asked them was. So kind of a cheat, but episode 200, my rules, roll the clip. 
Probably our most frequent inquiries are what pencil should I use for a certain application? Like, we do a lot of recommendations for lefties. Oh, so what's your lefty pencil recommendation? Our lefty pencil recommendation is usually, like, a camel pencil, right? Well, yeah, like a craft design technology pencil or a Desenho H yeah. is my go-to. I kind yeah. of thought pencils, I'm a righty, so maybe I'm just being thoughtless about my, my lefty friends. I thought pencils were ambidextrous. What makes a lefty pencil a lefty pencil? It's generally a less smudgy pencil. So some pencils have, like... So going back to the clay thing, pencil cores are a mix of graphite and clay and usually some kind of binder like wax or polymer or different things like that so depending on what mix a company has used to make the graphite core um and like the quality of it because quality really does matter when you're looking for a non-smudgy pencil um depending on how they've manufactured it some are just less smudgy than others so if you can imagine a left-handed person like dragging their hand across a paper from left to right, they always end up smudging their work. Um, so we, we look for pencils that are either hard enough, therefore have enough clay to not be smudgy, or like with Japanese pencils, they have a little bit of polymer mixed into them, which just kind of fixes them to the paper a little bit better. What other recommendations do people ask you for? Architects, maybe? We mentioned architects. Like, what do you what do you tell an architect? The architect and drawing question is, I think, our trickiest question because everybody has a slightly different idea of what sketching means. Um, because some people want to do very precise drafts with like rulers and outlines and like need a very fine line to work with, where a lot of people, when they're sketching, want something with a thicker, that makes a thicker, more expressive line, where some people want something in between. Um, so those ones are like that recommendation yeah, it tends to get a little bit more specific towards the what the person is looking for. Yeah. I, I had a lady in the shop this weekend who um, is a sculptor and she realized that she was just tired of making really big things. She wants to make smaller things. So she came looking for her new medium <laughs> and she spent like an hour testing out pencils. She was very, very thorough and she kept asking me what I thought the most three-dimensional pencil was. Huh. Do you know Do you know what she meant by that? Well, I think what she meant was that she wanted something that, like, has the appearance, like, it, ha- it easily has the appearance of being, like, 3D on a paper. She, I think she just wanted, like, the most dimensional, like, the pencil that leaves the most dimensional mark possible. And what did she end up with? She ended up with, she actually ended up with one of those crazy Mitsubishi 10Bs. She ended up with a couple of really cool Portuguese um, water-soluble pencils um, that you can work into with a paintbrush, and they kind of get, like, melty and inky. Um, she ended up with a couple of really hard pencils, too. She ended up with, like, a good sampler of a lot of things, but she did buy a lot of, like, the really chunky, just, like, thick, like, messy pencils. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I never had that question before, though. What What type of pencil leaves, like, a really, like... A really dimensional mark. Please don't tell my other guest this, but this next guest uh, is probably the most excited I've ever been um, that someone agreed to do the show. This is Jay Levy. He is uh, Weird Al's manager. He has been Weird Al's manager from the very beginning uh, through today. He directed a lot of Weird Al's music videos. He directed UHF, Weird Al's movie, one of my all-time favorite movies. Uh, and here we are talking about how he first met Al uh, through Dr. Demento and their shared love of comedy music and Alan Sherman. Let's listen. 
So it was through the Dr. Demento show that I met Al, and uh, we invited him one day to a, uh, a gig. You know, we would set up shows with Dr. Demento that we would do in clubs, small theaters, where he would do his DJ thing live and show short movies, uh, short films, and stuff like that. And um, we would occasionally have a live guest, and we uh, invited him to come out. I think it was in Phoenix, where we were playing at a club. And it was just him and his accordion, and he came out, he did a 20-minute set, and he just killed. He just, you know, mopped him up. And it was just, it was extraordinary to sort of watch the, you know, the um, uh, the reaction from the crowd. It was It was one of those... Uh, you know, epiphanal moments, you know, of, mm-hmm. you know, it was just like, holy cow. I mean, it was without a band, without anything. So um, after that, I mean, he came off stage and I just sort of looked at him and said, have you thought about doing this, you know, professionally? And he kind of looked at me almost like I must be kidding and said, you know, well, yeah, of course, like he had always really wanted to do that. And um, we started from there. That seems like it might have been a little bit crazy at the time because was there a large market for comedy songs and novelty songs or it was it just Dr. Demento? It was just Dr. Demento. And I mean, you could pretty much say, I mean, there was a market when I was growing up. I mean, I'm showing my age. I guess I showed my age when I told you when we first started working together. But, you know, growing up, I listened to and Al listened to. We had the same heroes. Um which is part of what led me to Dr. Demento. And then to Al, I would listen to Alan Sherman and the Smothers Brothers and Tom Lehrer. And that's, I mean, I was, I was glued to those guys. And that was a big, a relatively large, you know, Firesign Theater. There was a relatively large, Stan Freeberg, you know, it was a, a relatively, relatively large. I mean, certainly never as large as, um, as regular pop music. However, it was at a time when, you know, on the pop charts, um, you would have the Beatles next to They're Coming to Take Me Away, haha, by Napoleon the Fourteenth, which is some whacked out, you know, yeah, I kind of single, noticed. right? Yeah. I mean, and, and you know, so the you know, the comedy singles would chart, they would actually chart. Then radio got very structured and got very, very, very selective and you know, it got um, very narrow, and then that became very difficult to do. So there was a point at which, basically, um, certainly when I met Al, um, to there's a long-winded answer to your question. There was no other market, really, except for Dr. Demento. Was there something you saw in Al that made you think he could break through that Dr. Demento bubble and into the mainstream? <sighs> Just sheer talent. I don't, you know, it wasn't, I wasn't thinking about, well, this is a tough market. It's going to be tough to crack. I was thinking, this guy's really good and he's really smart and he's really clever. He was really musical. There was no question of his musicality, you know, all those things. And I just looked at this and I just, and, and watched him and thought, you know, uh, he is a giant talent and he will fill a void. I mean, in a way, it was almost, if I was thinking at all about the marketplace, I was almost thinking about it in that way, like, well, there's nobody out there doing this and, it, you know, and doing it certainly at this level and the level that he would be capable of. And in my mind, of course, I'm thinking what he would be capable of is, and is, and in his mind as well, I mean, we were totally thinking the same from the first day was putting a band together and, and doing records that sound like the originals. So, you know, to sort of burst above that sort of novelty aspect of a guy with an accordion. 
Let's see. Next we have Ben Sisto. Ben uh, is the curator of the Museum of Who Let the Dogs Out. Um, and that's not like a freestanding building that you can go visit yet. It's more of a collection that he has. Uh, a truly, truly incredible collection uh, of an insane – and just I cannot emphasize em- enough how in-depth and insane this collection of Who Let the Dogs Out memorabilia is. Um, so if we just talked about that, that would have been enough. But Ben is also uh, sort of an expert on the history of the song. Who let the dogs out? And if you didn't listen to the episode, you might be rolling your eyes because you might not realize um, what an interesting and sort of convoluted history there actually is behind that song. There's a lot of uh, legal challenges uh, about the hook and where it came from, um, and the samples come from different places. Um, ben, there's so much about Who Let the Dogs that you need to know that I actually pulled a few different clips and put them all together for you. Uh, and here's what that sounds like. Then what I found was at some point, on a very deep message board, you know, 30 pages into Google search results, I came across the song You're a Dog by an artist named Gillette. And someone had commented on a video of the song or something like that, like, sounds a lot like Who Let the Dogs Out to me. So I listened to it and I was like, I'm not hearing it. I'm not hearing it. And at about a minute and 30 into the song, she does the Who Let the Dogs Out chorus. The only difference being she says the word loose instead of out. But I have who always, let the dogs loose? Yeah, she says who. It's not as good. She <laughs> says who who let them dogs loose. But I've always sort of argued that contextually, both phrases imply that previously contained dogs are now uncontained. Yeah. So I think that who did you argue that with? The ether. <laughs> okay. And no one, no one argued back with me. Right, right, right. What's one of the more difficult records that you had to track down? Hmm. Well, I guess looking for a lot of the Gillette You're a Dog records took time because they were released either overseas or they're just like rare singles that people just don't put up for auction a lot. I mean, fortunately now with websites like Discogs, it's gotten significantly easier to to find records. Um, a lot of the... The reason that there are so many records too is I started tracing back all of the sample history. So... We didn't really talk about, I guess, to understand the why there are those records, I should also talk about this group, Miami Boom Productions. Do you okay. mind? Can I get into that? Yeah, please. Okay. So we, we before we went as far back as the Gillette song in 1994, but there was some other hints uh, on the internet about some people claiming original authorship of The Hook in 1992. A guy named Joe Gonzalez, who ran a message board for fans of Miami Bass, claimed that his group, Miami Boom Productions, in 1992, wrote a song called Who Let the Dogs Out. Miami Boom Productions, they, they claim that... Their story is really interesting. They Their claim is that they were driving around when they were teenagers listening to a song called Demad Scientist, which is by a group called Bass Patrol, in the Bass Patrol song, there is a sample of the song Pump Up the Party by Hassan, which is produced by Stevie B. And that sample says, who's rocking this dog's house? Who, who, who? Or it's more of like a roo, but it's it's the same. But it was so low in the mix that they weren't totally sure what it said, and that they made up the lyrics, who let the dogs out over it. 
the big thing that's been difficult for them is really this case of access. I mean, if you listen to the the Stevie B song or the Miami Boom Productions recordings, you you hear it. It's the it's the chorus. It's really there. But there's really no way to prove that their song ever got like radio play or or would have been passed around. But I started thinking about this entire ecosystem of prior art that kind of gets compressed into like one pop narrative. So within that Stevie B song, they also sample um, a song called Now Dance by Byron Davis and the Get Fresh crew. They sample an Eric B and Rakim song. And those songs are also based on soul songs and, and prior art. So a lot of the records are about tracing all of these samples back to essentially like the start of recorded music. There's some like Bing Crosby and Carson Robinson and, and very like old 78s that kind of show like where all of these phrases and ideas start to germinate and how they ultimately like compress into the pop hit that everybody knows. Who Let the Dogs Out is such a unique phenomenon. It's like that Macarena, like there's Mm -hmm. like once a decade type hit. Yeah. Well, I think that's sort of why I've come around on really feeling it is a good song. If I remove my own like pure taste, what I listen to at home and just think about it as a phenomenon. Yeah. It really, I mean, you you can't make many arguments against it. No, there's got to be something, there's something to it, right? Like, I think what's, what's interesting about it is, you know, it's a very like malleable hook. Like anybody can, if you want to identify as, so the, some of the original, the version by Anselm Douglas was a pro women track and, you know, it was against, um, men behaving, inappropriately on the dance gotcha. floor. So the men were the dogs, and it was like, who enabled yep. the men to do all this? Yeah, yeah. So, so the patriarchy let the dogs out, is what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, well, I've always sort of said that because men, uh, misogynistic, misbehaving men have ne- have always been in positions of power. They've never been contained to begin with, and that's why it's kind of silly to try to answer who let the dogs out, because... Right, they've always been out. There, yeah. was, there was no dog fence yes. in this interpretation of the lyrics. Correct. But... The Bahaman version, when it's played in stadiums, even even though the lyrics aren't that different, the sort of like jock culture that surrounds them means that like people identify as the dogs. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So it's kind of like whether you want to blame other people for being dogs, whether you want to be a dog, whether you want to ask the question or bark the response, it's very malleable. And it's super great for licensing, right? Because you can use it for... Yeah. Anything dog-related. Anything dog-related. Everyone loves dogs in general. Like, kids-related things. That's why you get into versions of it on video games like Smurf's Dance Party, where Gargamel sings, Who Let the Smurfs Out? Or you have Kermit the Frog, Who Let the Frogs Out? Yeah, that's interesting, because those are games designed for kids who couldn't possibly have been alive when the song was popular. So that just goes to show it's, like, lasting impact and influence. Yeah, it's just, it's one of the greatest phrases ever sung. This next one is a favorite Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin show memory of mine. As you may recall, uh, in two, what year was that? In 2015, I made everyone who listens to this podcast read the book, The Martian. We did a little book club, uh, sort of in anticipation of the movie coming out. Um, and the way we do book club on this show, uh, for a book like The Martian is we get Laura M. Brooker. She is a PhD student, 
who was studying the surface of Mars. Um, so she was able to not only kind of talk about the science of the book and how realistic it was, um, but also, and this is what really makes it such a fun memory, is the week we spoke happened to be the week that there was actually a pretty major discovery on Mars. So there was like actually some Mars news, and Laura was able to um, explain how that news, um, not only why it was important, but how it would affect the plot of The Martian if The Martian was written uh, when we knew the news. What's something you can, you know, that humanity has figured out about Mars, about the surface of Mars even, just from looking at pictures of it? Um, yeah, well, one of the uh, big discoveries is the fact that liquid water has flowed and, as we know from this week, is likely still flowing on the surface of Mars. And these are through images that have been taken using a high-rise in particular because it's a very high-resolution um, images that we get, 25 centimetres per pixel, just to give you an idea. Um, and you can actually see things like fluvial channels, so these are river channels on the surface of Mars, um, things that could only really have been carved through the actions of liquid water. Um, um, so that's one of the big discoveries that we've made. And actually, the discovery this week was um, using a spectral signature. So they actually studied these things called recurrent slope linear. And um, they found that when they analysed them, um, they were able to see that there's a signature for hydrated pl- uh, perchlorates. They're called hydrated perchlorates, which is uh, hydrated salts. So salts with water in them, basically. Um, so... Possibly this indicates that these uh, features that we see, these RSL, have actually got salty water. They're formed by salty water on the surface of Mars, which is a really big discovery. And it's a a big thing for particularly if you're thinking about life on Mars. And this is something we didn't know two weeks ago. This is the kind of the news that came out about Mars uh, just this very week. Um, just this very week, it was announced um, that officially they've uh, they've got this spectral signature. Um, but it has been debated for quite a while as to uh, what actually formed these streaks. And uh, salty water was one of the uh, big suggestions um, that we've had because we've been observing these RSL for quite a long time now. Um, but it's this confirmation that's come out this week that they've got this signature of hydrated salt. So it's really big news for the Martian community. Um, so we're all very excited about it. All right, well, let's start turning this into the book a little bit. Let's say that uh, we had confirmed this news uh, months ago or even years ago, I guess, when, when this book was first written. Uh, how, would this have affected Mark Watney's life on Mars at all? Um, I think it might have just slightly because actually um, he often has to use a water reclaimer to try and get water on the surface of Mars and at one point he actually has to burn um, try and get water from rocket fuel which is very dangerous um, but actually there's probably large ice deposits and now we know that there could be you know water actually flowing on the surface of Mars so he could have had a bit of an easier time for himself in uh, using that instead of trying to use the rocket fuel and the water reclaimer How would this have helped? Like, could he have just gone outside and found salt water? Uh, well, what I would suggest is that you probably could have gone outside and perhaps dig down into the subsurface where there's likely ice. Um, and perhaps he could have then taken that out of the ground and purified it in some way. Um, and that would have been a simpler process and uh, less, hazarded to his, um, less hazardous to his life, uh, especially with the, uh, the resulting uh, explosion that happens when he has to try and uh, synthesize water using the rocket fuel in the story. And that brings us to our final clip of the day. It is David Peterson. He is a linguist who constructed the artificial language used by the Dothraki uh, on Game of Thrones. Um, That's what we're talking about in this clip, though. David would come back on the show many times uh, over the years to discuss some of the other languages he created for Game of Thrones, like Valyrian. Uh, The reason that this clip 
had to be in the show is because this to me is is a critical Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin show memory. I am having so much fun in this clip, and I remember this very clearly because this is a pretty early episode. It's episode 40-something, um, and I just remember doing it and loving it and having fun doing it and feeling um, like I was having as much fun doing it as I, as, as I did uh, writing or doing stand-up or other things I was doing at the time. And it just, uh, it was when podcasting kind of clicked for me and I realized it could be as satisfying um, or even more satisfying in some cases as those other things. Um, it was this specific moment on the show, which I'm going to play for you now, uh, where David uh, humors me by translating random phrases into Dothraki. But what I want you to listen for, I guess, um, is not just the fun we're having hearing things said in a silly made-up language, but uh, in the thoughtfulness with which Dothraki was constructed um, and what they have words for and what they don't. Like, it's it's insane, and it's one of those things uh, where you don't really consciously process it watching the show, but it's one of, uh, like, a thousand extremely detail-oriented things that goes into Game of Thrones that makes it so immersive. And it's this detail that not everyone consciously appreciates, but um, you'll hear just how much thought, even in this brief clip, you'll hear how much thought uh, David has put into it anyway. I have to ask this. This is like my Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin Show t-shirt slogan. This is my catchphrase. Is this your full-time job? Is this what you do? <laughs> uh, for the time being, it is. That's awesome. Very few people are able to turn their uh, passion into their job, so I think that's great. Yeah, and it is. Uh, it, it can be a lot of pressure sometimes, but it is just so much fun. There's, uh, To me, there's nothing more intellectually rigorous than creating a realistic, authentic language. Can I ask you to say some things in Dothraki? Yeah, sure. How would you say, my, that's a lovely dress in Dothraki? Are you kidding me? There's no word for dress in Dothraki. What would be the equivalent? How would they, how would they handle that situation? <laughs> All right, you, give, me a <laughs> give, me, give me a second to find the, the word here that I, that I want. What are you consulting right now? What are you typing? Oh, I'm, I'm consulting my personal dictionary here. Uh, okay. How do you keep that file? What do, what do language creators use to keep a dictionary? Uh, everybody uses different things. Lots of people use like an Excel spreadsheet. I've never liked that. I, I've liked the look. I like something to look exactly like a dictionary. Uh, and so I use uh, a just basically, well, it's not a Word document per se because I use the Mac program Pages. So it's a Pages document. Um. And I actually, I printed it out once uh, at one point in time. So there exists a print Dothraki grammar over on my uh, shelf because I did an interview. Uh, I did a, a television kind of little documentary style interview for HBO um, and they were hoping to have a prop. And so I printed out my dictionary to that point and kind of bound it at staples. <laughs> so that was fun. Okay, so... Uh, yeah, yeah. And then I think I want... And said only a banana and nouns, right? Sorry, there's a, but yeah, I think I got it here. <laughs> uh, so it, so that's a it would kind of like this would be that's a, a lovely dress. It'd be a has line. Interesting. Kind of still not really. Uh, doesn't sound very complimentary. <laughs> yeah, chogar uh, uh, is um, is actually. That's a there's a funny story behind that. So, hogar is just a word that means your whatever you're wearing at the time. Uh, so you could translate it as garb, one's dress, one's suit, or one's clothing. If you know just what one's wearing. So that's probably what you would use. 
Um, and <laughs> this word comes from um, a friend of mine, uh, uh, John Moore. We had this uh, nickname for him in high school. We, we called him Hugar from the Spanish verb jugar because you know he would, uh, he would come over to my house after school and say, uh, hey, guys, you want to Hugar some all basketball? That's <laughs> just, you know, just a joking way of saying you want to play some basketball. So I decided to drop his uh, his nickname in as a word. And so his <laughs> nickname became the word for, you know, garb or dress. Because I happened to need a word for that at the time. Um, I thought it was based on Hogar, the character, who only speaks by saying his name, Hogar. Oh, Hodor. That's Hodor. Hodor, Hodor. <laughs> Are there any other Easter eggs like that within the Dothraki language? Oh, sure. Like uh, the word for good and kind is the word. It's, it's my wife's name, Erin. So, Irin. Um, and then... Uh, I hope she's still listening. Oh, 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 she is. Yeah, and I and so I won't tell you about uh, the other ones. No, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. But I, I actually, I also have a, a nickname for her. I I call her Duck, and so the word for Duck in this is her middle name, um, Allegra, which is Allegra. Uh, That's very sweet. <laughs> uh, and then there, are, I, 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 there, are, there are some other fun ones. I remember there was this kind of like fake feud going on between George R. R. Martin and the creator of Lost. Uh, where George- well, I can't, I can't get in the middle of that fight. <laughs> I don't want to take a side there. Yeah, well, uh, just just for fun, it gets all in the interest of fun. So, I, I the word, the the root lost, l o s t, means disappointed. Ah, uh, that's so sad. I can't. I don't. If we start, if we start talking about lost and the finale of lost, we're gonna we're gonna be here all day. We can't do that. Yeah, we. Yeah. Let's, uh, Let me run this one by you. How would you say one ring to rule them all? Oh, okay. Uh, okay, okay. Give me a second. Sure. Oh, crap. I looked up the word govern, and, of course, all I'm getting is all of these uh, grammatical things, like the, you know, the govern noun is in the nominative case, the govern noun is in the ablative case. Uh, oh, my goodness. I don't think I have a, 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 a word for to rule it's kind of a strange concept if you think about um or at least if you think about the the dothraki you know in the way you know khalasar is they don't really rule per se it's kind of like they direct uh they they drive oh i got it i got it hold on i thought of a synonym okay uh all right oh, oh shoot what's the word for one <laughs> okay, I've forgotten the word for one. All right, I will. I will get this. I will tell you when I'm ready. Do you mind? Uh, this is amazing. Do you mind if I ask my, my t- people on Twitter? I'm, I'm just gonna say we're talking and ask them if they have any suggestions. Yeah, yeah, go for it. Okay, let's see what they come up with. Okay, got it. <laughs> uh, that's actually kind of an interesting construction. Uh, I, didn't, I never thought of doing it this way. But, uh, okay. One ring to rule them all. Wow! And so, one nerd somewhere begins construction of the Elvish to Dothraki Dictionary. <laughs> All right, that wraps up uh, not only this episode, but the first 200 episodes of the Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin Show. Um, My never-ending thanks 
to the listeners, to people listening to this show. I would not do this show if people were not listening to it, and I really like doing this show. Um, it's one of the most satisfying things I've ever done. Um, I have no intention of quitting anytime soon, so I hope you'll keep listening. And um, I just can't tell you how much it means to me that you guys listen all the time, uh, even to what was a clip show. Come on, 200 episodes. I feel like I earned a clip show. Uh, thank you. As always, my never-ending gratitude for listening, um, and also to the guests uh, who make this show uh, what it is and agree to do the show. I, I, I just can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Um, I'll see you guys at episode 201. Bye! That was a HeadGum Podcast.